0: i read i will say this is the word of the lord and you respond with thank you psalm 24 the earth is the lord's and everything in it the world and all who live in it for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters who may ascend the mountain of the lord who may stand in his holy place the one who has clean hands and a pure heart Who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. That the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty the lord mighty in battle lift up your heads you gates lift them up you ancient doors that the king of glory may come in who is he this king of glory the lord almighty he is the king of glory this is the word of the lord
1: Good morning, city. Wow. I I like to be loud, but um, this is different. Good morning, city church. You're welcome to worship service mini. You know, there's iPhone pro max, 13 pro max. There's iPhone 13 pro. There's iPhone 13. Then there's iPhone 13 mini. This service is our worship service mini. But I guess some of you are thinking, ah, so now that everything is short. Sermon two will be short, have you? No lie. na lie. Sermon will not be short. But thank you for bearing with us, and especially for those of you who came on time. You know God has a sense of humor. Some of you, you delayed, delayed. I won't come to church on time. So that at least towards the end of service, you get by the time I come, be like 13 minutes to the end. Then I've already started doing something. And then God orchestrated it in such a way that <laughs> the service started when you arrived. <laughs> and as I was just reflecting, like, man, this is, like, if somebody invited somebody, this is awkward, right? Like, you check this church. Ah, they look nice. They look really great. Let me come for service. And then you see people walking around in front here. But then I remember, like, hey, guys, where are the people that had a rat crawl down the curtain in our service, if you can't remember, um, all you need to know is that we are here today, right, so we'll, we'll survive this, but we're happy to have you. Um, today we begin a new sermon series, if you, if you missed um, the last couple of weeks, we're happy to have you, um, and for those of you who stopped inviting people because of the last sermon series, you can now start inviting people again. And we're starting a new sermon series today that we've titled, As It Is in Heaven. In the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus' um, disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. You know, and it's interesting that that's the only thing Jesus' disciples really ask him. They don't ask him, Lord, teach us how to preach. They don't ask him, Lord, teach us how to work miracles. They say, Lord, teach us how to pray. In other words, there was something about the prayer life of Jesus that was like, man, this guy... This is something to learn. This is something to know. And so as a church, we want to spend some time over the next couple of weeks thinking about how can we be the kind of people whose prayer lives as a church and as individuals is so much in tune with Jesus's that the mission of God actually advances. And so in Matthew chapter six, verse 10, when Jesus begins to instruct his disciples on how to pray, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and you know in other words it means that sometimes there is a gap between God's will as it is in heaven and God's will as it is on earth and the people who bridge that gap by the spirit of God or by the help of God are people who have been taught how to pray or who know how to pray as Jesus would And so I pray that at the end of this series, by God's grace in our lives, in our church, in our world, in our work, all the places where we find ourselves, that his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's just spend some time to just pray and ask the Lord to do this for us. Lord, we ask this morning, we want to learn. Lord, we want to be like the disciples who learned how to pray <laughs> because there was something about your prayer life that wasn't just ordinary. There was something about your prayer life that wasn't just repetitive of words. There was an intimacy, there was a vibrancy, there was a contact between heaven. Lord, there was something that was evident in your ministry that this person has been with God. So, Lord, we ask that at the end of today's sermon, but Lord, also at the end of this series, that, Lord, your kingdom will be done on earth, in city church, as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. And so, as I was thinking about today's sermon, um, I started thinking, I, I was reminded about classic pieces of Nigerian literature. If you, if you haven't, if you didn't do literature, you don't like literature, Sorry, but just tune in. Um, so some of you might know poems, some poems by people like J.P. Clark, um, who wrote about Ibado, and all his rusty roofs. Um, maybe Walesho Inka. Walesho Inka's writing is, if you don't understand it, it's not that you are not smart. It's just that all of us don't understand it, <laughs> right? There's only one poem of Wolesho Inka that I've ever read that I understood. But that's Poetry. There are novels. Um, novels, China Achebe, Things Fall Apart, A Man of the People, that was written just a couple of weeks before the, um, before the first coup ever happened. And like when he, he, his book came out and the coup happened, like, the, the federal government actually sent soldiers to go and arrest him because they like, did you know about this thing that was going to happen? Um, there's Buchi Emecheta, Joys of Motherhood, Second Class Citizens, those kinds of really classic works of Nigerian literature. But most of us don't think about plays. Plays. We just go to, um, what's that place where we go and watch, and watch the play, right? And Ektera yeah, culture you get and we just forget about it. But there are some really classic works of Nigerian literature in plays. Like the Trials of Brother Jerome. By Wale Sherinka. Like if you're a Christian, you should actually read that one. Because all he does is just show how Christians or churches used to prey on people's intelligence. Well, there's one that virtually everybody knows, virtually everyone. It's written by a guy called Olarotimi, And the title of the play is The Gods Are Not to Blame. And basically what happens in that, in that play, which is a retelling of a classical Greek um, story, is that there is a guy who was burned. Um, a, a, a man and a woman, a, and his wife who had a child. And then the oracle gave a prophecy and said, ah, this child is going to kill his father and he's going to marry his mother. Kill him because his future is dangerous. It's not bright. And so they decide, the father decides he should be killed. But the mother gives an instruction to somebody, don't kill him, just go and sort of abandon him. He will die that way. And so they go and drop the child in a very, very far place, and then a farmer finds this child, and then he decides, who would do anything to a child like this? Why would somebody want to kill a child like this? And so he rescues the child, and he takes the child back home, and the child grows up in another village far away from where his original parents were, so he doesn't have any sense of, oh, this is who my parents were. And then one day he's walking along the road and then he meets this man who provokes him and he strikes the man. You already know where this story is going. He strikes the man and he kills him. And then he continues his journey. Obviously now he's killed somebody. He can't go back to the village where he's originally from. So he runs away and he runs into another village where it so happens that the king of that village has just been killed by a stranger. And everybody is in mourning. And then they find this guy who is this epic sort of person, this hero who is ready to help us and to save us. And then they make him king. And then he marries the wife of the old king. Everything is going well until there is no food, there is famine, there is a curse. And then they consult the oracle and the oracle says something is wrong here somewhere. And then the oracle eventually reveals that, oh, actually, you, this guy that has now become the king, you killed your father, and now you've married your mother. And then you have to die as a result. And so the destiny he was running away from eventually catches up with him. Here's the point of the story. We know, both in that story, but in human experience, that where people, when people occupy positions that they are not meant to occupy, There is chaos, and there's disruption. Just think about Nigeria, right? And I'm not even talking about civilian politics. Just think about our history of military rule. Almost 30 years of people being in position. Yes, we had some economic successes and all that, but by the time the military left, our economy was backwards from where it was, our people's rights were taken away from where it was, There was a sense of confusion, there was angst, there was chaos. Why? When people occupy positions or when things occupy positions that they are not meant to occupy, there is chaos. And when we look at this passage today, really that's all the psalmist is saying. This whole psalm is about who God is and who other gods aren't. And the psalmist is at pains to sort of show us to see that when God is king, who is glorious and who occupies his place, there is flourishing. But when we put other things in the place of God, false gods, when they occupy the position that God is meant to occupy, there is chaos. And so today we'll be considering the sermon called dethroning false gods. Because when you think about your life and when I think about my life, I see that, man, there are things that are occupying places where they shouldn't be. And as a result, there is chaos and there's confusion. And I pray that by the time we are done today, the false gods in your life, the false gods around us will be dethroned in the name of Jesus. So how do we dethrone false gods? We identify their false claims. We reject their false promises and we destroy their strongholds. How do we dethrone false gods? We identify their false claims, we reject their false promises, and we destroy their strongholds. Let's look at the first one. Identify their false claims. Have you ever played a game of comparison? Or bragging? Some of you might remember, in secondary school, there was this sort of way of People, the way people used to address each other, where you will be bragging about things that you have done as though the other person that you are bragging against isn't there. But you are sort of saying who you are and, and the kind of person you are. Or maybe in, if you came from a polygamous sort of background, or if you watch Fuji House of Commotion, you know that there are the different wives. And then somebody's just singing. My husband slept with me last night. Somebody else is not... And the whole point is not that, the whole point is this person can actually hear me, but I'm actually saying these things in such a way that they see their own emptiness and their own foolishness. That's what's going on when you look at verses 1 to 2. In verse 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. There's a proverb in Yoruba language that says, The person who owns the slave, owns the slave's goods. No matter how rich a slave is, if he likes, he should be a billionaire. As long as there is somebody else that owns him, that person owns, owns all that the slave has. And the psalmist is sort of saying that here. He says, everything that is in the earth has been made by God. And so everything that is in the earth belongs to God so we see that God hasn't just made the world and has sort of departed, but God also sustains and owns everything in the world. But in verse 2, the psalmist continues, and now he's bragging not just about what God has made, but also how, who God is in comparison to other gods. He says, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Think about that for a minute. It seems very simple. But actually, it's more complex than it actually is. He founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. I remember, I don't know if you have a friend like this. I remember a lady who came for um, service visited us a couple of months back. And you know, we were talking after ourselves oh, thank you for coming. What do you do? So think, I'm doing a PhD. Like, wow, really? In what? Molecular biology. Um, How old are you again? I'm just 26. You know how people sort of drop things that is like, this is huge. Like, this is great. And it's just sort of casual. That's what the psalmist does here. God founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. When last did you create something and you dropped it on water and sustained it? You know, for those of us who are sort of familiar with Lagos or places like Dubai, it's not not extra because, you know, you see all the land that we've sort of reclaimed from the sea, right? And now we've founded all these things. But actually, the difference is that all these people, human beings, work with what has already been made. God works with what doesn't even exist at all. He founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. And it's interesting because what the psalmist does here actually entirely, he doesn't brag about anything else. He brags about creation. He brags about creation. Have you ever thought about the complexity that is involved in sustaining eight or nine planets? In just ensuring that all of them stay where they are meant to be. Okay, forget about the planets. Have you ever thought about the complexity involved in sustaining one planet? That the stars have never sort of, there's no light today. Or the sun is now dropping, hanging. That we are just close enough to the sun to be warm. Not too close to the sun to be burned by it. But not too far off from the sun to die of cold. God sustains all of creation by his very word. And so I like that song that we always sing. The songwriter is profound. He says, who taught the sun where to stand in the morning? And who told the ocean you can only come this far? And who showed the moon where to hide till evening? Whose words alone can catch a falling star? We serve a glorious God, friends. You don't need to see everything sort of working out well in your life. All you need to do is wind down and look out and be like, wow, this world exists. This world hasn't fallen apart. The Atlantic Ocean hasn't sort of come to meet us here in Lekki and just flooded us over. It stays where where it's meant to stay. Oh, yes, sometimes it extends its boundaries, but then it goes back. Who does all of that? Last man. But what's very interesting, if you remember what I was saying, is that the psalmist is writing here, aware of the competition. He's aware of other false narratives of creation. He's aware of other gods who are making claims that they are the ones who sustain the world. And so he's he's writing. Am I back? Thank you. So let me just quickly walk through two, two of such. One is the one he's directly confronting. There's a Babylonian myth called the Enuma Elish. And it's a, a creation account of how the world came to be. And basically, the world came to be when the water gods were fighting. And so, there are these water gods who were fighting, and then the things don't go well. They give birth to a son who wants to sort of upstage his parents. And so they cast him and banish him away. But then this junior god now goes and parlies with other gods and then they strike a deal and say if you empower me and I defeat these people we can all rule together. And so this person fights against the other water gods and then he conquers. His name is Madoc. And And how does it so happen that the world comes to be? Because he has conquered the water gods he now separates them and says oh this one is on top. Do this or that one, go and stay here. And so the world only happens as a result of happenstance. There was no order. There was no thought. There was no reflection. There was no concept given to actually creating the world. The world just happens because I happen to win a war between the gods. But then there's another one. And this one is in Islam. And even though it's very very close you see the similarities I'm going to read to you a, a few verses from the longest chapter in the Quran you see some very similarities to Christianity you also observe a significant difference so this is chapter 2 verse 34 to 36 it says when we told the angels bow down before adam they all bowed but not iblis who refused and was arrogant he he was disobedient we said adam live with your wife in this garden Both of you eat freely there as you will, but do not go near this tree, or you will both become wrongdoers. But Satan made them sleep and removed them from the state they were in. We then said, Get out, all of you. You are each other's enemy. On earth, you will have a place to stay and livelihood for a time. Doesn't it sound familiar to the Christian narrative? So God gives certain instructions And then they don't actually obey the instructions. But here's the key difference. They only happen to go to the earth because they were banished from the presence of God. In other words, the earth is the result of a mystic. One says the earth is the result of mere chance. I won a war between the gods. The other one says the earth is the result of a mystic that was created by human beings. The Christian narrative says actually, the earth was intentional. Created by a divine sovereign God who orchestrates all things to fulfill his purposes. And even though we sin as human beings, we cannot frustrate his counsel. False gods make false claims. And you might be here and say, wow, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's good to know. I shouldn't worship false gods. But the truth, friends, is that even though we may not bow down Physically, before false gods, we bow down in our hearts to false gods. Tim Keller, a pastor in the U.S. says, An idol is anything more fundamental than God to your identity, your happiness, your existence. And when you think about that, you suddenly see that men, they're idols in my own life. Maybe I'm not worshipping the tree. Maybe I'm not worshipping the things that sort of exist, but what are the idols in my own life? What are the idols that are lying to you now? You see, our idols make false claims to us. They tell us we exist to work. We exist to make money. We exist to have families. We exist to eat for some of us. They make false claims. But well, here's the thing. Have you ever seen a picture or a statue of an idol? An idol is always surrounded by food. There is something that it needs to feed on to sustain the worshiper. I used to work in Lagos Island. And so every morning, well, not every morning, but often you see, you sort of be driving at junctions. And some of you know this on, in different places where you live. And then you see a calabash there, you know, with food inside for the God, so that the God can give me what I want. And many of us, we have offered the things that actually God has gifted us with on the altars to these idols. So maybe some of us, we have offered our children on the altar of work so that we can appease the idol of success. Maybe we have offered our priorities on the altar of progress so that we can achieve status and symbol. Our idols always take from us. They never give. They always take. But the other thing the Bible shows us about idols is that idols also decreate those who worship them. In Psalm 135, verse 15 to 18, he says that those who worship idols, these idols of the nations, they are silver and gold. They are made by human hands. They cannot see. They cannot hear. They cannot speak. And then he ends in verse 18. He says, those who worship them become like them. Haven't you seen? in your own life, but also maybe in the lives of those you love, how this person becomes less and less of a human being because they've given themselves over to seek something else apart from God. Idols, decreate. And it's interesting in this passage that all the psalmist is talking about in verses 1 to 2 is really just creation. He doesn't talk about other areas of God's magnificence. He's talking about creation. And I think there is something here. That part of the reason why idolatry flourishes so much in our lives is because we don't pay attention to the glory of God in creation. And really, that's how our world is sort of constructed, right? There are tall buildings everywhere, so you can't see. You're surrounded by bridges, right? You're surrounded by things that people have made. And so every day, the world around us is screaming to you, how great thou art. How great thou art. How great thou art. There is nothing that we cannot do. But actually, the more we ponder God's glory and goodness in Christian, the more we see ourselves as the small people that we really are. Can I encourage you? Maybe some of you should just actually just step out of your house at night and just look at the stars. And just say like, man, I didn't create this. I didn't make this. God did. Maybe some of you should pay more attention when you fly in your airplane. Don't shut the windows. Just look out again. And just see that (laughs) there is actually no glue that is holding these white things together. It is standing there by itself. God made all of that. Idolatry flourishes where we don't see the greatness of God in creation. But also idolatry flourishes where we don't think about our own finitude and infinitude and limitness. We don't think about how limited we are. How many times have you sworn that I will not forget this thing? You make a promise on, don't worry, I won't forget, I'll be there. I'll send this thing at 2 p.m. I'll call you at 3 p.m. I'll do this and you forget. And how do you respond? You're like, oh, how could you? How couldn't you? Like, really, who do you think you are? We are limited human beings. And every time we sort of think of ourselves as greater than we are, idolatry flourishes in the heart because we see ourselves as omnicompetent, right? And the one who can do everything, and the one who is gifted. As though you gave yourself all of these gifts and God didn't actually deposit it in you. Idolatry flourishes when we think, when we don't think of our limitations. So how do we take out these false claims that idols have over us? In Psalm 139, the psalmist ends with this prayer, verses 23 to 24. It says, Search me, O God, and know my anxious thoughts. Two things there Search me, O God, and know my anxious thoughts. What are the things that make you worried? What are your anxieties? Your anxieties actually are a very good indicator of the things that you worship and the things that you bow down to. What are you afraid will happen? You're afraid of poverty? And so maybe that actually shows you that maybe your idol is wealth. You're afraid of people's opinions and so you do anything and everything to make sure that you look a certain way. Maybe your idol is bowing down to people's opinions. What are you afraid of? But then the second thing the sermon does there is to say, search me, O God. Even when you think and other people think about you, there's only, a, there's only so much that you can know about yourself if God does not beam his searchlight upon you and he searches you himself. And that sort of fits into the entire theme of this series. We go to God in prayer and say, God, search me. God, search me. Reveal my heart to me. Reveal my motives to me. Seriously, friends, you have lived with yourself for 30, 40 years. And every day, people tell you things about yourself that you don't know. How do you think that you know all the things that are in your own heart? The psalmist calls for God. He says, search me, oh God. It is in the place of prayer that God searches us. It is in the place of prayer that we identify these false claims. And we say, God, I give it up. These false claims of idols, these false claims of things in my own heart, I give it up and I'm surrendered to you. But the second thing we must do is that we must reject their false promises. Reject their false promises. And so the psalm sort of continues with a question and response structure. There's, there's this song that has been sung or this declaration that has been made in verses 1 to 2. But now there is a question and response sort of section in verses 3 to 6. If God is this great God that we see in creation that cannot be, that, can, that no one rivals, that no one approaches, that no one can hold a candle to, how then may we stand before this holy God? That's the question in verse 3. When he talks about the mountain of God and talks about standing in his holy place, he's talking about the temple there. He's referring ultimately to the temple of God on the Mount Zion, where people worship God and people approach God. How can we stand before this holy God? I don't know if you've ever been in this sort of shoes where I remember when I eventually had to meet the the man who is now my father-in-law. Pay attention, those of you that are married. How do you visit your father-in-law? How do you visit somebody who is um, sort of this is very important dignitary? The good thing was, here's where it's good to watch Nigerian movies. I had watched Nigerian movies. so I would sort of, you know, seen what would happen. we we'll sit on different chairs, and then we interview me and ask questions. So I was ready for that. But then what I didn't know is that there was a way to appear. There was a way to look. And so the man, Balumi had told me that I want you to meet my dad today and all of that. So I think I just sort of appeared casually. And then he then comes, he's wearing a white, actual white, buban shokoto. Like this is a very serious occasion. Somebody's coming to ask for my daughter's hand. And then he sees me, okay, well done young man. What's your name? I tell him my name. So she said, he then asked this, so she said, you want to marry her? And then say, yes, sir, I want to marry her. And then he says, just shakes his head. (laughs) You children of nowadays, it is your father that is meant to be here telling me this. But no problem, no problem, no problem. And then he goes on, he asked me, fortunately, fortunately, he knew my dad. So, oh, okay, okay, okay. And then he then asks this question. Are you serious? I say, yes, sir. Because I'm going to pray a prayer now. And this is the only time I will pray this prayer. I must not pray this prayer again. Do you want to go and think about it? Say, <laughs> no, sir. No, sir. <laughs> we are serious. And so he prays for us. There is a way to approach someone that you want something from. And that's what the psalmist sort of shows. The question is, so, okay, so, so wow, this God is great. This God is grand. How do I then approach him? Verse 4 says, actually, you must come before him with clean hands and a pure heart. Like, wow. (laughs) I don't have that. What else? It says, "Um, okay, if you don't have that, don't trust an idol and don't swear by a false god. And when the psalmist presents this, he's saying ultimately that those who come before God must come with clean hands and a pure heart. Both your actual actions and the things that you intended with your actions must be pure. How many times have we said to people, ah, don't judge me by what I did. Judge me by what I wanted to do. And the service here is saying, no, no, no. Both your actions and your motives need to be pure to stand before God. Verse 5 says, if you are able to do this, there's a catch. You will receive a blessing from God and vindication from God, your Savior. The only problem I don't know if you've met you lately. The only problem is that we don't have pure hands and a pure heart. It's sort of like going to your in-laws house like me. Except that this time, it's not just that you didn't dress well. It is that you actually don't have any clothes. And if you know the whole logic of that visit, it is to show yourself as the kind of person who has the potential. So it's not just what you are today. This is also what you can be in the future. Is to show yourself as the kind of person who has the potential to both take care of yourself and take care of their daughter. And what the scripture is basically showing us is that nobody has that. Nobody has that. God promises something. But the truth actually is that the reason why we don't have the pure hands and the pure heart is also that our idols promise us something. They promise us a certain kind of vindication. And when he talks in verse 5 there that those who who go to God will receive a blessing and receive vindication. What it means is that they will receive the ability to be justified or the ability to stand right in the presence of the other person. And we think about the idols and false gods in our lives. They tell us that there's something else that can justify us. They tell us that there's something else that will make us stand right in front of other people or appear right. There is a blessing, there's a promise that awaits us. And so if you advance in your career to sort of justify those things that you've made, the only thing that is available is for you to blow. Or to achieve the kind of vindication that you want from those around you in your family because of the kind of kids you have, your kids must look a certain way and they must be well behaved. Our idols are always telling us that there is something that will justify us. But you see, the the problem is that they mistreat us because they misdiagnose the problem that is wrong with us. Our problem is not that we don't have things. Our problem is that things have us. And so in Luke 18, verse 22, this young man comes to Jesus. He's called the rich young ruler, and he says, How can I achieve eternal life? And Jesus basically says to him, Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? And he says, Oh, yes, I've done all of these things. And then Jesus says, Oh, okay. So go and sell all your property and give to the poor and come and follow me. And the Bible says that he went away sorrowful and sad. Why? That whole episode was to show that it wasn't just that he had things. It was that his things... His property had him. And every time, friends, that we follow the false gods or the idols around us, it actually shows that our problem is not the things that we don't have. It is that the things that we are chasing and looking after have us. No pure hands. No clean hearts. And so no commitment to God. So how do we get here? If you're Nigerian, you've seen the Ariel adverts, right? Or the hypo or happy card, but they're all the same. There's a video that is shown to you of somebody's toilet that was dirty. And then they say, oh, use this product. And then when you use this product, actually, your toilet will become clean. And so you go and buy it. And then you try it in your own toilet. And it never works. Well, it depends on how dirty your tell is. It never really works, actually. But actually, the cleanliness that we get from God is not like that. The cleanliness our idols promise us is that, like that. It promises us we'll look a certain way, we'll be clean, we'll be presentable to others. But actually, no. The cleanliness that we get from God actually is not like that. And so, how do we get this? Remember, God dwells on a holy mountain and he comes as king over his people. And so in the Old Testament, God sort of told the people that the only way they could approach him was by offering a lamb or an animal to die in their stead. And so that was how they could approach him. That lamb would die in their place and take away their sins. And that was how they could be with God. You could call that animal, that lamb, a lamb of God. And so all through the Bible, animals needed to be killed every year and presented to God again every year and sort of killed again every year. And that was how you were able to approach God. The only problem is what then happens if the temple no longer exists? Or what then happens if you are no longer offering animals? Eventually we come to Isaiah chapter 53, Where we are told that there is going to come a lamb that will be slain and that will die in the stead of God's people. So that he would then take away the iniquity and the sins of God's people. But actually, the story of the Bible is that that doesn't happen for many years until we come to John chapter 1. And there's this man who is walking. And John the Baptist then suddenly tells other people, hey, look at this person. But of all the ways to describe this person, the person of Jesus Christ, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In other words, this was not just somebody who was just going to live and sort of go his own way and be an example to us. This was going to be somebody who would actually die in our stead and take our place and give us access to God. So that those of us who don't have clean hands and a pure heart can now stand before this God. But you say, oh, what if this person's sacrifice isn't actually successful? Well, the Bible tells us in Matthew that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil is rent in the curtain as though to say all who wants can come in. When you believe in this person, it is no longer by what you can accomplish by yourself. It is no longer by what you can think of by your own accomplishments or your own achievements or your own works. It is all by what he has done. And So if you are here this morning, and you are wondering, man, I don't have a clean hand. I don't have a pure heart. The good news is Jesus had clean hands and a pure heart. And he went and he died in our stead and he becomes the lamb of God that then takes away all of our sins so that we can come boldly before the presence of God and have access to him. And so that all the false promises that our idols actually promise us and give to us, we can dispense with them and actually have the blessing and the vindication from God. it's interesting, friends, that verse 6 says, that the people who get this blessing are those who seek him, who seek your face, the God of Jacob. In other words, there is a sort of positional experience of the blessing. And there is a practical experience of the blessing. When you become a Christian, you get a positional experience of the blessing. Now you can ascend the holy presence of God because of what Jesus Christ has done. But actually, many of us don't ever actually experience the practical side of that blessing because there is no seeking. That's what verse 6 says. I like the way someone put it. His name is John and He says, do not be content to have right ideas of the love of Christ in your mind unless you have a precious taste of it in your heart. If you do not actually experience the love of Christ in your heart, you will not retain the idea of it in your mind. Did you catch that? If you do not actually experience the love of Christ in your heart, you will not retain the idea of it in your mind. And so the truth is, the reason why many of us do not actually experience the love of Christ in our heart is because it is still here in our minds. It is still here combating the false promises of the other gods, the idols that we are trusting in. And it is in the place of prayer that we say, God, make this thing real to me. I want to seek your face. If you've ever been in love, you sort of know what this is like, right? It is not just okay for the guy, well, if the guy says yes to you, but actually it's the ladies that say yes to you. It is not just okay for the babe to say yes. There is actually an experiential side of that yes that you get. There is the seeking of the person's face. There is the going on dates every time. There is the text messaging and all that. There is the constant calls. What are you doing? You are seeking the person's face. I have the blessing. I have the connection already. But I want to experience the richness of that connection. And the psalmist here is saying that those who get that blessing, those who experience that blessing are those who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Are you seeking God's face, friends? Are you actively rejecting the promises of other gods? Are you coming before God in prayer seeking his face and saying, God, I want to know you. I want your love to overwhelm my heart. I want it to flood my heart so that it actually drives my life. We must reject the false promises. Well, Lastly, we must destroy their strongholds. We must destroy their strongholds. I don't know if you have friends like my good friend Toki or my wife where you're sort of talking you're having a conversation and maybe it's like Toki's oh this sermon what do I do what do I talk about okay you can do this you can do that and then all of a sudden he just talks about something that is op off point just be like so that money it, like which money i thought we we're talking about sermon That's sort of what's happening in verses 7 to 10. We come to these last four verses and all of a sudden he's talking about gates and ancient doors. And you're like, wait, 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 slow down. I thought we were talking about creation and approaching God. But actually, the psalmist is making us see that false gods are not just content to give us false claims. They're not just content to give us false promises. What they ultimately want to do is to create strongholds. We don't want to create strongholds in our lives. What's a stronghold? A stronghold is a pattern of thought or a recurring situation that aims to hold you captive so that you do not live as God has intended. Let me say that again. A stronghold is a pattern of thought or a recurring situation that aims to hold you captive so that you do not live as God has intended. This is ultimately the aim of false gods. And some of you already know this as I'm speaking about your life. Some of you know marital strongholds that exist. You have sought counseling, you have prayed, you have fasted, you have talked, you have apologized, you have done different things, and yet you still keep coming back to this point because there is a recurring pattern of thought or a recurring situation that seems to hold you captive. Some of you in your families, there are emotional strongholds. You say, Oh, this is how we are in our family. We are just we're just passionate, we're not angry, we're just passionate. Why? A recurring pattern that says this is actually how you address situations. we not abusive. I'm just a, I'm just a you know, I'm an eager lover. <laughs> Emotional strongholds. Some of you, there are sexual strongholds. You've sought counseling. You've prayed. You've asked. You've done different things. You've gone to different places. You've detoxed. You've and yet, you still keep coming back to the porn. You still keep coming back to the unrestrained sexual appetite. Strongholds. How about corporate strongholds? And we say, oh, this is a, is a very um, driving work culture. You know, we're just very, very eager in the things we do. But actually, you, are, you backbite and you cheat. And you sort of take advantage of others. Or maybe even in politics in our country, how is it that every time good people get into office but they're never actually able to do anything? Strongholds. Strongholds occur because a false god has been worshipped and placated and that false god has now held people in grip so that they actually do not become all that God has designed them to be. How do we destroy strongholds? Well, we don't do it by ignoring them. And I think that for many of us, that's sort of what we do, right? We just, I refuse to see evil, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. I just sort of go on my own way. We don't do it by ignoring them. We don't do it by negotiating. And so some of us, we sort of negotiate that, oh, no, just this small part, just do this small thing so that I can have my own peace and do my own thing. We don't do it by ignoring them. We don't do it by surrendering, sorry. We do it by destroying them. If you look at verse 7 to 10, what does it say? It says, lift up your heads, O ye gates. And, and commentators tell us that what's happening at this point is that two priests are sort of exchanging to themselves. They are sort of reminding themselves of the greatness of God in the face of battle. And they're saying, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And says, oh, who is this king of glory? It says, the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Verse 9 says again, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up ye ancient doors, so that what may happen, that the king of glory may come in. In other words, strongholds aim to prevent God from taking his place and exerting his rule. But by God's grace, every stronghold amongst us in our lives will be destroyed in the name of Jesus. How do we destroy strongholds? The first thing, A, acknowledge their existence. What you see the psalmist doing here in verses 7 and 9 is he saying there are ancient doors. There are gates that need to be broken up. Acknowledge their existence. Don't just sort of look around and say, oh, this is who we are. You ask yourself, why has this thing been recurring in my family? why has this thing been a recurring decimal in my life? In other words, be spiritually discerning and say, no, no, this thing is not what it's meant to be. Acknowledge their existence. But the second thing is that we must combat them with spiritual intelligence. Combat them with spiritual intelligence. In other words, you replace the lies of of the strongholds or you replace the lies of the false gods with the truth of God's word. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3 to 5 in the King James. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 to 5. It says though we walk in the flesh we do not walk after the flesh. Yes. Next verse. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And verse 5, it says that we cast down imaginations and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we bring into captivity every thought. Bring into captivity every thought. Bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You take the lie of the stronghold and you compare it with the truth of God's word and you say, I combat that lie with this truth. I combat that lie with this truth. In other words, renewing your mind. So you acknowledge, you combat, but you confess the truth of God's word. And yet, many times, friends, confession is integral to accomplishing victory in the spiritual life. And I know many of us have, oh yes, people sort of confess things and you know, you are not on board with that. But the truth is that when we are confessing the truth of God's will, we are not creating victory. We are reminding ourselves of victory that has already been accomplished. And you see this every time that when people are sort of fighting or accomplishing or approaching situations in the Bible, there's always a confession that is going on. When David is approaching Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, what does he say? He doesn't just listen to Goliath's lies and say, oh, well, Goliath, actually, I'm I'm better than you. No, no, no. He says, God was with me when I was with the bear. God was with me when there was a lion. God will be with me even now. He was confessing the reality of the victories that God had already secured. And he was combating that with the lie of the struggle that was in front of him. When Jesus was approached by the devil in Matthew chapter four, he doesn't just say, "Leave me, devil, go away." No, no. What does he do? It is written. The devil comes, jump down. It is written. The devil comes, turn this stone to bread. It is written. Every time he was combating the lie of the enemy with the truth of God's word, confess the word of God to your to, to, to your situation and your stronghold. Hebrews thirteen verse five to six the writer of Hebrews is there and he says that all of these things keep your life free for the amount of money because God has said I will never leave you nor forsake you and in verse 6 he says because he has said I can therefore boldly say what can mortals do to me combat the lie of that stronghold with the truth of God's word but then lastly you assert the victory and the power of God Look at our text again, verses 24, then, um, verses 8 and 10 of chapter 24. It says, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Verse 10 again, it says, who is this king of glory? The Lord almighty. He is the king of glory. In other words, you constantly remind the gates or the ancient doors, your strongholds of the power of God. That this is not just a God who can be toyed with. This is not just a God who is sitting down and distant. This God is a man of war who pulls down strongholds. You acknowledge your strongholds. You combat them. You confess the truth of God's word. And you assert the victory of Jesus. And what happens when strongholds are destroyed? Psalm 68 verse 1 to 7. What happens when strongholds are destroyed? In verse 7, he says, You went forth before your people and you marched through the wilderness. In other words, God's presence begins to accompany you. Whereas it was just our false gods that were sort of walking with us through the journey of life. Now we see the presence of God very clearly in our circumstances. In verse 9, he says... God sends a plentiful rain, and those who were weary now are made strong. In other words, their spiritual strength. But lastly, in verse 11, it says, God gives the word, and great was the company of those that published it. In other words, mission now becomes possible where God's presence is. Every stronghold in our lives built by false gods, will be destroyed in the name of Jesus Christ.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.